Welcome to Asia in Washington, the podcast of the Edwin O. Reischauer Center for East Asian Studies at Johns Hopkins SICE. Our website is reischauercenter.org. I'm Evan Sankey. Today is June 25th, 2019. In this inaugural episode, I will interview Dr. Kent Calder, Vice Dean for Faculty Affairs and International Research Cooperation at Johns Hopkins SICE and Director of the Reischauer Center for East Asian Studies. Before arriving at Johns Hopkins SICE in 2003, Dr. Calder taught for 20 years at Princeton University and four years at Harvard University. He has served as Special Advisor to the U.S. Ambassador to Japan, Japan Chair at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and as the first Executive Director of Harvard University's Program on U.S.-Japan Relations. He is a specialist in East Asian political economy, having spent 15 years living and researching in Japan and East Asia. Dr. Calder received his Ph.D. from Harvard University in 1979, where he worked under the direction of Edwin O. Reischauer. His books include Circles of Compensation, Economic Growth and the Globalization of Japan, Singapore, Smart City, Smart State, Asia in Washington, and The New Continentalism, Energy and 21st Century Eurasian Geopolitics. He is the co-author of The Making of Northeast Asia and co-editor with Francis Fukuyama of East Asian Multilateralism. His most recent book, and the subject of this episode is Supercontinent, The Logic of Eurasian Integration, published by Stanford University Press in 2019. Dr. Calder, welcome to the podcast. It's wonderful to be here. Well, let's jump right into questions. The core claim of your book is that the inherent geographic potential of Eurasia is being unlocked by three catalysts, energy, the logistics revolution, and finance. Explain this logic of Eurasian integration. I think the place we need to start is with uh, the map, with geography. Eurasia is the largest continent in the world. Uh, About 40% of the entire land surface of the Earth. Uh, It parts of it have tremendous uh, resources. The Middle East and Russia have the largest energy resources in the world, a virtual storehouse of oil and gas. Asia also has half of the world's population. China is the largest uh, population on Earth. India is second. The peoples of most of Eurasia don't consume much energy, even though close by, of course, are the largest storehouses of energy on Earth. Uh, Consumption in India is close to one-tenth of what it is uh, in the United States, for example. So interdependence in energy across the continent is a natural uh, area for deepening integration. That integration uh, has already begun. Uh, As late as 1983, uh, China was a major energy exporter, and yet today 
as a result of rapid economic growth and its huge population and rising energy demand for things like air conditioners, automobiles, uh, a whole range of the conveniences that we take for granted. Uh, China has become one of the largest uh, oil importers in the world. So uh, energy is a natural driver of interdependence. The question then becomes more broadly and also outside energy, what are the drivers that can deepen this natural interdependence across the largest continent on earth? The two important ones that I single out in the book are the logistics revolution that has occurred just in the last uh, decade. It's intensified. It has roots as far back as the container shipping revolution of the 1980s, but it's been accelerating rapidly since then uh, as the digital revolution has proceeded. It's 30% uh, shorter across land from um, Europe to, to, to China than it is by the sea routes from Shanghai to Hamburg or Rotterdam. Uh, so changes like high-speed rail, like digitalized ro loading from road to rail to river to air, or electronic customs clearance have all shortened the distance across land. And with now with e-commerce, uh, companies like Alibaba or B2B uh, internal uh, e-commerce uh, are allowing for uh, very deepening of production chains across the continent. So the logistics revolution is deepening ties. Another important facilitator is finance. The Asian Development Bank in, uh, insists that there is a need for as much as $1.7 trillion a year in infrastructure spending across the continent up to the year 2030. So who is going to provide that funding? In the past, of course, this was a tremendous problem as the nations of Eurasia uh, were quite poor. Uh, today, of course, per capita income is still low in many countries, but China has by far the largest foreign exchange reserves in the world with around three trillion. Japan is number two uh, with multi-trillion dollar reserves as well. So the finances for this infrastructure across the continent are definitely there. And uh, the large sovereign wealth funds of China, um, investment from the other countries of East Asia, as well as international capital markets, uh, make that possible. Uh, the Eurasian continent, as I said, uh, is the largest in the world and its connectivity definitely is rising as a result of the logistics revolution and the finances that are now available uh, across Eurasia. 
What is your evaluation of the Belt and Road Initiative as Chinese grand strategy? Can the BRI coexist with the rules-based international order? I think BRA, BRI makes tremendous strategic sense for China. It's probably the most uh, coherent grand strategy of major nations uh, in the world today. You might ask why that is. Certainly, BRI is, is broadly criticized internationally. First of all, from a China's perspective, BRI is important because China is literally the middle kingdom. China is literally Tsonghua. It's the country right in the center of the Eurasian, of the economically active part of the Eurasian continent. Certainly, Siberia uh, is, if we look geographically for where the center is, it would be uh, probably somewhere in Central Asia, uh, further to the west, possibly further north toward Russia. But of course, those Arctic portions of Asia are not economically productive. Uh, China is situated uh, particularly strategically because it's between Southeast Asia, which is so dynamic economically, Southeast Asia to the south, uh, Japan and Korea uh, to the east, and then to the west, of course, the open spaces of Central Asia, but more importantly, with Europe beyond that. Uh, half of the distance between uh, the east coast of China, between Shanghai and the borders of uh, the European Union is inside China. China itself extends right across Asia. Uh, also, uh, two-thirds of the distance from the Bohai Gulf to the Strait of Hormuz, where the oil of uh, uh, Eurasia comes from, is inside China. So China really is right in the middle and it's also uh, extremely uh, wide from an east-west and a north-south perspective. It's a massive presence in the middle of the continent, and the Belt and Road capitalizes on that. Um, connectivity necessarily, uh, of course, can cut two ways. If China is weak, China's connections with the rest of Asia allow other countries to uh, intervene and to exploit uh, potential weaknesses. Conversely, however, um, if China is strong, uh, connectivity lets it expand its influence uh, to its neighbors and then uh, beyond. I should add uh, one other thing that I think makes a BRI particularly uh, relevant for China uh, today and that is the weakness of Russia. Of course, Russia has nuclear weapons, and, uh, but its population, of course, uh, is sharply down from what it was. Um, uh, the breakup of the Soviet Union has reduced it to around 150 million people, uh, which is close to uh, one-tenth of China's population. Uh, the Russia's GDP uh, today is only one-sixth of China's. In uh, 1992, uh, when the uh, 91, end of 91, when the Soviet Union broke up, uh, Russia's GDP was actually larger 
than uh, China's. Today, it's only one-sixth, or roughly speaking, uh, the GDP of South Korea. So uh, there's been a tremendous transformation in the political economy of Eurasia that I think uh, gives China uh, tremendous uh, opportunities and makes the BRI as a way of increasing connectivity across uh, Eurasia and Africa, something that's very much in China's interests. What about the, the implications of the Belt and Road Initiative for the rules-based international order? Well, uh, I think it is hard. China is tempted uh, to either set its own rules or to co-opt the other players in the system uh, with roads and bridges and uh, Huawei um, uh, switching systems. Um, it, it's hard. There's a temptation to break rules or to ignore the rules. I think certainly that's the case. But what the Chinese sometimes say about BRI being a win-win proposition, in some limited ways, I think is, is true. Uh, it's not necessarily a win-win proposition for the oppositions or, in many cases, for the uh, person in the street in individual countries. Uh, it is, however, potentially a win-win proposition for the elites of the countries with which China is dealing. It, gives, it creates infrastructure that can be politically or even economically attractive. I think it probably accelerates growth potentially across the continent. And of course, it brings uh, the countries that are involved with BRI uh, closer together. So it has major geopolitical implications without being the sort of, uh, you know, aggressive uh, interventionist, uh, militarily interventionist uh, strategies that otherwise uh, across the centuries from the days of the Mongols to the days of, of Hitler and other uh, invading armies have normally been the way through which Eurasia has been integrated. How diverse is the drive for Eurasian integration? We hear a lot about the Belt and Road Initiative, but what about the efforts of other players? I think it's important. You make a very good point there. It's very important to realize that um, the deepening relationships across Eurasia that holds a prospect of, of transforming it into a supercontinent actually do not simply add up to a, a Chinese co-prosperity sphere. Uh, there are many other nations that are uh, deeply involved in deepening ties across the continent in ways that further their own interests, and in some cases are competitive with China. This is not the great game. I think uh, the arguments that uh, you have a repetition of the 19th century here are off base. Uh, China has a stronger position uh, than the uh, any one country in most of the balance of power struggles of the past have had. Um, 
and there are deepening uh, relationships that are something other than simply an expansion of Chinese power. Let me ma mention uh, just a few. Um, the Russians, for example, have the Eurasian Economic Union. Putin has been pushing that. And that is uh, something that uh, deepens the trade relationships among Russia, Kazakhstan, and Belarus. Um, and, you know, that's in Russia's interest. Uh, it's subsumed into this larger integration, but that's one set of policies. Um, and Russia, of course, is careful in some of the ways it relates to China and, uh, and still remains hesitant. Um, Turkey has the Middle Corridor Initiative. Korea, uh, President uh, Moon, Moon Jae-in in Korea has his nor new northern strategy and uh, new southern policies. Uh, for the last 20 years, beginning with Kim Dae-jung and his Iron Silk Road, um, relationships across the continent have been very important to Korea. Uh, India and Japan have their Asia-Africa Growth Corridor proposals. Uh, Prime Minister, uh, uh, that Prime Minister Modi in India, Prime Minister Abe in Japan have been pushing strongly so there's a broad range of other initiatives. There's also the smaller countries. There's um, the uh, recently Uzbekistan has been quite dynamic in bringing together the countries of Central Asia. There's the Mongolians. Uh, there are, uh, there's Turkey, as I mentioned. Uh, several of the smaller countries also uh, have a stake in uh, deepening integration across the continent. The successful emergence of a supercontinent depends upon a long-term peace in Eurasia. Uh, but just to challenge you a bit here, the, the history of Eurasia is not peaceful. To what extent might security tensions undermine Eurasian integration? Mm -hmm. Or conversely, what are the prospects of, Eur of Eurasian integration improving the continent's security mm -hmm. relations? I think you have uh, put your finger on a very, very important issue. Um, but the first thing I would want to say is this is not the world of the 19th century great game, uh, partly because the countries involved have much deeper interdependence than uh, they've had in the past, even between India and China, who are considered to be two of the uh, largest rivals in the region. Their trade is roughly $100 billion a year, and it's been increasing uh, very rapidly. Uh, and Prime Minister Modi and President Xi have also uh, begun a dialogue, and both are in, now involved in the SCI Cooperation Organization. And uh, so I think the idea that this is simply a 19th century style um, geopolitical rivalry is overstated. Um, to be sure, there are natural. Uh, tensions and hesitance among some of the major nations. One of, that I am uh, looking at with considerable concern is the relationship of uh, China and Japan. 
the two uh, giants of Northeast Asia. Many Japanese speak of this as Koharubiori, or a um, Indian summer, the recent rapprochement between um, Prime Minister Abe, President Xi, uh, when they visited, when uh, Abe visited uh, China last October, for example. Uh, an Indian summer, of course, is a time when things look bright, but then the winter is coming. Is that what is going to happen between China and Japan? Um, there are tensions even between um, close allies of the United States, the relationship uh, between uh, Korea and Japan, uh, for example. Uh, but I think given the overall uh, economic integration uh, that's occurring, um, it's very difficult to see those things alone breaking out into the kind of conflicts that we had across the first half of the 20th century, uh, partly because um, China is so much more uh, uh, integra integrated and coherent as a nation uh, than it was. That said, the concerns that I would have relate to the configuration of Greater China internally and to how uh, relationships may evolve between uh, areas such as Hong Kong, which recently, of course, has had uh, demonstrations, um, Taiwan, uh, and the mainland of China, of course, with the South China Sea also uh, right on the periphery, uh, by the Shanghai Communique and uh, beyond, it's been generally conceded that those are part of a single nation, and which of course has long coherence and uh, crucial importance in world affairs. There's no question about that. Um, but many of the ambiguities in terms of how their relationships may evolve, I think are, are clearly there and uh, some areas, uh, such as Hong Kong, of course, do have very deep, uh, broader interdependence with the world as well. And so I think some of the uh, most important uh, uh, tensions uh, for the future may be these kind of partly internal and partly transnational uh, sorts of, of tensions, sort of a new... 21st century uh, set of issues that we haven't seen before. How should the United States respond to the changes sweeping Eurasia? Well, I think we have to recognize, first of all, that um, our historic relationships with the Pacific are longstanding and uh, the United States also has deep stakes, uh, particularly in, in the Pacific. Historically, of course, less uh, significant in Central Asia and some other places, but with common, common interests, with the, uh, certainly with important alliances with Japan uh, and Korea, uh, particularly, uh, but also with a stake in the self-determination of uh, countries 
uh, in Central Asia and with a deep concern for uh, human rights and the evolution of uh, peoples across the continent. Um, in terms concretely, uh, I think the uh, U.S. response needs to be a, an, a combination of, of trust building and appreciation that uh, we need a stable world with um, a reaffirmation of traditional uh, American values and a sense of our geopolitical interests. In particular, uh, the U.S. naturally has, as, a preem as the preeminent maritime power, it has uh, an important uh, stake in the freedom of the sea lanes, uh, relationships with maritime powers such as Japan and, in some ways, Korea, uh, and India also, and Singapore. So uh, I would say of the belt and the road, China, of course, has been stressing both, particularly the road, making sure that there's freedom of navigation. And I do think there are important cooperative security uh, issues. There are even there are areas where the United States can uh, cooperate as well uh, with China, for example, on piracy, for example, as we have uh, in the past. Um, with making sure that there is that freedom of navigation because countries like Japan and Korea do get 85% of their oil from the Middle East. And so the freedom of those sea lanes is tremendously important. Um, I do think, however, that you know I'm relatively optimistic about the long-term future of... U.S.-Asian uh, relations, I think they, it takes work, um, certainly, and of course we can't ignore that the, there are deepening um, areas where technology is moving toward the interface of security and economics as well, in uh, uh, AI and areas like that, that do present some natural um, areas of of competition, but we need to develop uh, ties of reassurance on global issues and on the issues of cooperative security. I mentioned uh, piracy, for example, on health, on energy, on the environment. I think on all of those things, there are win-win uh, approaches that the United States, um, Japan, China, Korea, all of the major nations actually uh, can engage in. Um, so we have to be looking for those at the same time that we are not um, naive about um, national interest and national security. Your book makes clear that Eurasia's integration flows bidirectionally, Asia's expansion to Europe's reception. What does Europe's eastward tilt mean for the transatlantic relationship? I think it means two things, basically. First of all, uh, the potential for tensions with Europe, particularly uh, Central and Eastern Europe, which are uh, becoming the most uh, inter interdependent overland uh, with 
Asia, particularly uh, with China, China and Russia. Well, China particularly. Um, it also, you know, those countries, and I, I would particularly point out the 17 plus one. It was 16 plus one uh, countries of Eastern Europe, and um, on the one hand, and then the one being China. And now 17 plus one, because just uh, since the beginning of this year, Greece has also joined uh, the 16 plus one dialogue between Europe and China. Um, so, so those uh, are countries that, as we can see, for example, in, in their approach to Huawei, where uh, they have a deep interdependence with Huawei, um, are relatively uh, close uh, to China. Um, but certainly uh, Europe's interests are deeply uh, entwined in some ways, I think, with the, the dialogue or the interdependence across the continent, the production chains. German companies like BMW and Volkswagen are working on um, battery development, for example, uh, with China. Um, China's the largest market for uh, Germany uh, today. Uh, there are uh, deep uh, supply chain interdependencies across uh, the continent. So naturally, uh, with those economic ties, uh, Germany, but more, even more than Germany, country, Sweden or countries to the east, like Poland or uh, Serbia, have very deep uh, ties with China. I think what this means in the end is that uh, Europe's uh, tilt eastward means uh, the need, a rather urgent need for expanded Asia dialogue across the Atlantic, that is to say between uh, the United States and Canada on the one hand and uh, uh, the European countries. Uh, because Eurasia itself as I point out in Supercontinent, is gaining more uh, coherence across the continent. So our final question is about India. India, curiously, plays only a peripheral role in the narrative of Supercontinent. Uh, isn't it inevitable that the other one billion-plus population country will have a major say in how the future of Eurasia unfolds? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, in the book, I present India, and I admit that it may be provocative, as something of an outlier. To be sure, in sectors uh, where geography is not important, uh, for example, software development, uh, even some areas of, of defense, um, telecommunications. India has very deep relationships across the world, and during the Cold War it also had deep relationships, including in uh, the defense area with the, with the Soviet Union. Uh, and so India certainly has those uh, important ties in some areas uh, with other major players in the continent. And I did mention $100 billion in trade uh, with China, for example, and, and the defense ties 
with Russia. Russia, quantitative terms, is the largest uh, supplier of defense equipment uh, to India, despite a positive relationship of India to the United States. Um, so there are those uh, interdependencies, I, to some degree, I admit. But I come back to what I think is the unavoidable importance of geography, which is uh, implicit in the analysis we're doing in supercontinent. Um, India is isolated by the Himalayas, on the one hand, from China, uh, and also isolated uh, in geopolitical terms from Europe by Pakistan, with which it has a long-standing uh, uh, rivalry, unfortunately, and ironically enough, by Iran as well. India and Iran have strong traditional ties, but of course India is torn by a desire to deepen relations with the United States and those long-standing ties with Iran, with which obviously the United States uh, does not get along. And so um, access to Europe in particular is difficult for India. It's difficult for India, as we point out in the book, to forge the sort of dynamic and highly interdependent ties which China is beginning uh, to develop with Europe. Uh, so the easiest access for India, I think, is toward uh, Africa or by, across the seas to Japan. Uh, the relationship with Central Asia, uh, Europe, uh, is not impossible, but it's more complex, which leaves me to believe uh, that it's much harder for India than for China to stand at the center of the emerging Eurasia. Our guest today has been Dr. Kent Calder. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks very much. It's a real pleasure to be here. Asia in Washington is a production of the Edwin O. Reischauer Center for East Asian Studies at Johns Hopkins Sice. Visit our website at reischauercenter.org.